Turn with me, please, if you don't mind, to Romans chapter 10. We are currently in a verse-by-verse teaching series in the book of Romans. I'm sorry, in the book of Genesis. And uh, we'll pick that up again next week. But as a response to what Patris Ramat shared with us last week and their story of uh, Jesus saving them as uh, former unbelievers in Pakistan and then turning them from being His enemies into actual worshipers and even missionaries for Him, I felt like it was appropriate for us not just to leave it there, to not just say, wow, that's a really compelling story, but to see how we fall into that story, how, how, we, how, how we are part of that. As I taught through Romans a number of years ago, we went all the way through the whole book, and it was nearly almost three years ago specifically that we spent time here in Romans chapter 10. We're going to focus today specifically on chapter 10, verses 14 through 17. And I entitled that particular sermon three years ago, What Role Do We Play in the Mission of God? So I'm just going to take that title back up. I reworked my approach to this sermon again because we're going to focus on more than just these uh, few verses, and we're going to look at the whole chapter so that we can get some context. But, but I felt like as a response to what we heard last week that it's appropriate for us to, to spend a week and say, okay, that's a great story, but, but what about us? These thoughts that I'm going to put in front of you on the screen and with my words today are not new to you. They're, they're a repeat of things that we say a lot, but we're a lot like our own children in the sense that we need repetition. You know what it's like with your kids. This is a really good analogy for us. You tell your kids the same thing over and over and over again, sometimes because they don't listen well, sometimes because they don't understand it, often just because they forget. And it's frustrating as a parent, right, to tell your kids the same things over and over and over again. But that's part of being a parent. It's wrapped up in, in helping shape these little hearts so they can become responsible adults and leave the house, right, so you don't have to keep doing it for forever. As adults, we're a little more sophisticated than that, but, but the analogy holds true. We need repetition. And so the things that we're saying today shouldn't be brand new to you, but at the same time, we need repeating. I want to put in front of you on the screen our mission here as a church. The mission of our church is that we exist, so there's a reason why we're even here. We exist to glorify God through the life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. By the aid of the Holy Spirit, we will seek to produce maturing disciples who will be responsible to model and proclaim Christ in their communities and around the world. And that's why we're here. We're not here just to learn more about the Bible. We're not here just to have a warm community. Those things are true, but there's a more overarching purpose why we're here. We are here to see more disciples made. This is so that Christ will be glorified, so that people will have lasting joy. We didn't just come up with this out of the blue. It doesn't make us unique. This should be the purpose of any Christian church. As I was praying a few minutes ago, and it comes from my heart because I consider some of these thoughts a lot for myself, it's easy to look at the mission of the church and say, okay, 
That's the mission of like the organization, but that's not really my individual mission. Like, like maybe that's what the elders do. We pay Lee. He should be doing that. Like he should be going to Polaris and handing out gospel literature, or maybe we'll send him to Kenya once a year, and, you know, he'll go into the slums, and he'll hand out some literature in Swahili or whatever, and, like, that's our deal. But this is something that's much more corporate than that. It's, it's a we thing. It's an us thing. It's easy to make excuses for why we don't engage in this. You could say, well, the elders know more than us. If they get a sticky question, they probably can usually answer it. I'm super freaked out that if I uh, share the good news with somebody, if I talk about Jesus with somebody, that I'm going to get the kind of question that's going to make me look really stupid, and that's just going to harden people further in their unbelief. Or you might say, I'm really shy. It's really hard for me to engage with people. It's hard enough for me to talk to my own spouse. You might say, well, you know, there's these people I know, and they're just really good at, at engaging people and sharing their life and their knowledge of Jesus, and that's just not natural for me. You could, out of a time of, of unique honesty, say, I'm just scared. I'm scared of being laughed at. I'm scared of being persecuted. You could say, I'm too busy. You could say, I don't have time for that because I've got too much going on. If you're being really, really honest, you might say, I don't really know that many unbelievers. Do you realize how, how easy that is for us? We can sort of retreat into like a little Christian bubble and we keep our kids away from the evil people, and we keep ourselves away from the evil people. And it's not that necessarily we don't want to be with them. We just fill our times up always with Christian people, and we never spend any time with them. And that's not an indictment on your schooling choices, not an indictment on where you live or what you do with your time necessarily. I'm just saying, if we don't have deliberate, purposeful engagement with the world, how are we ever going to share with them? These and many more reasons are sort of the underlying obstacles we have in engaging in this corporately. And I may have just stepped on some toes in that. You're just going to have to forgive me because I find myself in some of these problems. I find myself to have a lot of these obstacles as well. But today as we respond to what we heard last week and what God is seeking to do among the nations to bring the light of the good news of Jesus Christ to all peoples everywhere. We are to have a corporate, a holistic dedication to being involved in this. It's going to be true that there's going to be people that you know, Christians you know, people in this church family who know the Bible better than you. They may well be more able to articulate deeper theological things. They may be a little bit more equipped to handle difficult questions. That's true. It may well be that you're not the most engaging person in the world. You may wish you had your brother or your sister's gift, where, where it's just easy for them to, to get to know anybody, that, that they never met a stranger. You may wish you were like that. But the reality is, wherever you're at in your giftings, wherever you're at in your current level of maturity and understanding Christian doctrine, you have a responsibility to engage the world around you with the life-giving, exclusive gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want us to see that today as we move through that passage. So I ask you to prayerfully ask the Holy Spirit to be working in your heart as we work through this passage today. So let's read it, 
Then I want to give you an overview of its structure so you can understand its message. Then I want to talk about some ways that we can respond to it practically. So this is God's Word. Brothers, Paul says, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and he's speaking of the Jews here, is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. The idea is all peoples, all nations bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone, all kinds of people everywhere, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are they to call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. And Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. And this is God's inspired word. The first thing, and really the last thing that we see in this passage is that self-righteousness is universal and damning. That's what this passage teaches us in a bracketed way. Paul begins with an exposure of the self-righteousness of the Jews. In the middle of the context of this passage, he extends it not just to the Jews, but to all nations. And then he ends, once again, with an exposure and an indictment upon self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is universal. It's a problem that all peoples have, and it's damning. Here's what Paul means. The most privileged are in danger of finding hope in their privilege. That is to say, 
those who know a little bit or maybe even a decent bit about Christian theology are perhaps in the most danger. We have seen that throughout church history, that as the Christian church has spread its message and its organized systems around the globe, it does not take too long for those systems to become corrupted, to become self-righteous, and for the message of the grace of Jesus to be eclipsed by self-righteousness. It has happened for hundreds and now thousands of years, and it is happening to this day. I was talking to the Ramats, Patrick and Naomi, the other day over lunch, and they're still learning what America is like. And we were talking about this notion that America is a Christian nation. And I said to them, no, it's not. And they had a hard time with that. Foreigners, especially those from predominantly Islamic countries, have a difficult time with that. Basically, anybody who's white and lives in the West, they're definitely a Christian. And if you look back at the roots of our country, there's religious ideals, there's, there's Christian principles, but by and large today we are not a Christian nation. And frankly, as you look back through the history of our nation, often our attention to Christian theology was merely a veneer. This may come as a surprise to a lot of you because you think about the pilgrims and then the Puritans and all the people who seemed to be so moral in the 18th century. But do you know that at the latter portion of the 18th century, something like 70% of the people who lived here in the colonies had never darkened the door of a church? The illegitimate birth rate was just as high then as it is now. It's sort of a a facade, a, a bit of an illusion that America has really ever been a Christian nation. Now, your little band of initial pilgrims were. They fled here because of that. But as the colonies took shape, we had religious sort of Judeo-Christian ideals. And there had been periods in America through awakening and revival that, that, that maybe Christianity has permeated the culture a bit more. But as we look at our culture now, which is increasingly becoming post-Christian, it would be a stretch to say that we are a Christian culture. We are headed in the direction of Europe. Western Europe, which was the seedbed of the Protestant Reformation, where the gospel exploded and churches were planted and people were transformed. If you go to the major uh, metropolitan centers of Europe today, you are hard-pressed to find a church that preaches the gospel. We're still a lot better off here, thanks to God. But by and large, our culture is not Christian, and we find ourselves in increasing hostility against the culture. Self-righteousness is true. It's present among the religious and I think one of the difficult things about America is that though we are coming, becoming post-Christian in our religious attention, there's still sort of a veneer of morality around us. 
Whatever you choose as your principles of living become kind of your own self-righteousness, your own morality, and whether you're getting those from your pastor as he preaches the Bible, or you're drawing them from, from your own heart, most people around you, in fact, I think we could say without any reservation, all people around you are marked by self-righteousness. I have neighbors that probably attend some sort of Christian gathering at Christmas and Easter, and yet they have principles they live by. They might have a strong affinity or affection for environmental causes, for certain aspects of social justice. They might take great pride in being great parents or being good employees or or good members of their community. On the other hand, you might know people who are faithful churchgoers, and they seem to cross all their T's and dot all their I's, but their source of righteousness does not come from God. It comes from their attention to those religious practices. And frankly, even those of us who understand that Jesus is the only hope for all peoples everywhere, we are still filled with a lot of self-righteousness. Whatever you find your identity in, that's where you think your righteousness comes from. If your identity is based upon being a godly wife, a loving husband, a great father, a good employee, a good boss, a faithful friend, athletic, kind, being a good servant. And all those things I just mentioned are good things. But if you find your identity, if, if you want people to see you through the lens of those various things, and, and even more importantly, and this is, this is really where we get down to the, to the brass tacks of the whole deal, if you think God accepts you on the basis of any of those things, you are finding your identity in them and you are self-righteous. The Jews were like this. Paul says that here in this text. They have a zeal, but it's not according to knowledge, Paul says in verse 2. That is to say, they're religiously zealous, but they're not pursuing the righteousness that only God can give them. They're trying to earn it through their efforts. And he calls them ignorant, and he says that they are unwilling to submit to God's righteousness that comes through Christ. In fact, God has been pursuing them, we find at the end of the chapter. He has held His hands out to them now for millennia, and yet they still don't submit to Him. They seek to earn His favor through their behavior. That's the crux of self-righteousness. So, should you be a good dad? Yeah. Should you be a good biblical wife? Of course. Should you give your money to the poor? Should you attend the gatherings of your church family? Yes to all those things and so many more. But if you think for a millisecond that God accepts you 
on the basis of those things, then you are self-righteous. How can you know if you are? When life gets really hard and the bottom falls out, your marriage starts fracturing, the job environment gets a little sketchy, money runs thin, your health is in question. When those things happen, and there's a lot more things that rock us to our core, where does your mind go? Where does your affection go? What do you lean on? When the big questions of life are placed in front of you and you have to answer big questions, where do you turn? What do you lean on? What do you find to be your solid ground? And when you begin to think about the big questions that then lead you to even bigger questions like like eternal questions, like people are failing me, this world is not satisfying, there's got to be something better. Is there? Is there a God out there and will He accept me? And on what basis? I hope he sees that I, that I do good things for people. I, I hope he sees that I try to obey his principles. I hope that he sees that I'm a good person. No, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. I try most of the time, sometimes. Well, not all the time. It's hard. That's self-defeating, you see. Because when it really comes down to it, we know we're not that good. But as we go through those periods of mental and heart struggle, we, we argue ourselves out of our points of despair back to points of trying to get through life on our own. And then we, we erect more and more idols. And over time, if that self-righteousness is not attacked and done away with, you build layer upon layer upon layer of self-righteousness to the point that it becomes almost impossible to penetrate That's hard enough for those of us who understand that Jesus is their only hope for righteousness. It's impossible to overcome for the world around you who does not understand the gospel of Jesus. Self-righteousness is universal among Muslims and Hindus and Mormons and atheists and Christians. and it will send you straight to hell. And I don't say that with any sort of glee. I say that as a warning. Self-righteousness at its very core is deceiving and it's destructive. But there's a remedy, and that's Paul's point in this passage. God rescues the self-righteous on the basis of their trust in Jesus. And that's what he's saying in verses 6 through 13. There is a remedy to this. Self-righteousness is pervasive. It's pernicious, which is a word that you probably didn't use this week, but I want you to learn it. It's it's like really bad evil. The English language is beautiful and wonderful, and sometimes words capture ideas a little bit better than the simple words we often use. Self-righteousness is not just evil. It's pernicious. It's really evil. It's like infiltrating evil. 
But Jesus came to push back against that. Think about the wonder of the incarnation. The Son of God, who had no beginning, was born as a baby. And He came down to this world, and He lived as a real human with all the pressures of evil around Him. The Scriptures teach us that He was tempted like we are in every way, yet without sin, with the responsibility to obey all of God's laws, the ones that no human had ever fully kept, coming into a world which was marked by the pervasiveness and the perniciousness of self-righteousness, and He came here to eradicate it and to give us another way. Jesus was not self-righteous. Jesus was righteous. And He came to share His righteousness with the self-righteous. When Paul here says in this text in verse 6, and this is a little tricky, this comes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, an Old Testament reference. When he says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down. Or in verse 7, who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. I won't get into all the details of this, but basically what he's saying is, People think it's really, really hard to come to God. That's what the self-righteous think. They've got to work their way to God. And deep down, they know it's hard. And perhaps in their quiet moments, they know it's impossible. Conversely, verse 8 says, but what does it say? What does the Scripture say? What does the Gospel say? The Word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart, That is the word of faith that we proclaim. In other words, Jesus did not keep Himself from us. Jesus did not hold us to standards we could never keep, and if we didn't keep them, promised to damn us. He took on flesh to come be with us. He became Emmanuel, which means God with us. John the Apostle says in the first chapter of his gospel that Jesus literally came and tabernacled with us. He spent time with us. He set up shop here. He became a man to save men. The righteous came to rescue the self-righteous. And as difficult as this is to understand, it is a gift that is right in front of us. So, how is a person saved? Perhaps we should answer the question first, saved from what? Saved from sin, yes, and its stronghold on us. Saved from from frustration, yes, because a life apart from God's design for us is frustrating. But ultimately, we are saved from God. The one has the authority to cast body and soul into hell. That's what Jesus saves us from. In fact, if you think about it, this is some of the irony of the Christian gospel. Jesus saves us from Himself. That's beautiful. How do you appropriate that? How do you make that your own? According to Paul here in this text, you have to believe it, and then you confess it. What's that mean? I think traditionally in in Western Christianity in particular, we've turned this into like an event. 
There's some moment where you pray a prayer and there's certain words you have to say, almost like some sort of magic prayer. And usually you need to be seven and you need to be on your knees in your PJs with your mom, with her Bible open by your bed next to like Raggedy Ann and Andy because that's what was popular when we were kids. Now it's like pillow pets. And then the kid prays a prayer and they, you know, get some sort of certificate when they go to Sunday school the next week. And then they're Christians for the rest of their lives and everything's great. And just to make sure you like write it in their new like baptism Bible. You put the date down so they never forget. That may be how you were converted. My story was kind of like that, and I think it was genuine. But too often what we do whenever we look at that as sort of the, the basic structure of Christian conversion is we turn it into an event. The prayer saved us. Our mom saved us. The church saved us. The method saved us. And that is not what this passage is teaching. The real question is, who saves us? It's the one who came to us. The one who did not need to be brought down or brought up. He came to us. He tabernacled, spent time with us. And why are the mouth and why are the heart included in this process? Because with the heart you believe, according to this text, and with the mouth you confess, verse 10 says. This is not just believing certain things about Jesus. You're going to be hard-pressed to find a majority of Western Christians, especially American Christians, and I, I use that term sort of loosely. I don't mean people who necessarily embrace all the truths of the Bible, but, but loosely would call themselves Christians which is still a majority probably of our culture. You're going to be hard-pressed to find most of those people rejecting the basic elements of the Bible. In other words, most people in our country are going to say that there was a guy named Jesus, and he was crucified, and maybe he even did get raised from the dead by some distant deity. And he taught us a lot of good things, and he sent his messengers out, and they had certain things that we needed to hear. A lot of people around you that may never go to church and maybe have a lot of struggles in life, they might assent to those basic facts. That's not what we're talking about in belief here. In fact, sometimes the word belief is an unhelpful word for us. It's not just believing certain things about the Bible. It's much more than that. It's the idea of trust, of rest, of giving yourself over to these things, of, of banking on them, of staking your claim on them. And I think that's why it goes beyond just believing it in your heart. It comes to the point of confession, which is more than a prayer in your pajamas with your mom by your bed whenever you were in primary school. I think Paul's point here is when you confess it, you're making a statement. You're saying to the world around you, I'm banking on this. More specifically, I'm, I'm banking on Jesus. He's my only hope. So what's true of the world around you? What's true of your heart and mine? That we are infected with a disease called self-righteousness. Believing mistakenly, but with great fervor, 
that if we work hard enough and if we're good enough people and we're kind and we're nice and we give to UNICEF or UNESCO or some sort of other thing out there and help the poor and help the needy and do nice things for our neighbors and hang out with the Elks Club or the Shriners or whatever the case may be, that that somehow God will accept us on the basis of all that. But the message of the gospel cuts right through that. Salvation from God is possible because God offers us Himself. And that's what the cross was. The cross is God offering Himself for us so that He didn't have to destroy us. Think about what Jesus did on the cross. Through no fault of His own, because He didn't break any of God's laws, Jesus, the Son of God, hung on a tree and took the wrath that we deserved. The cross is a great place of substitution. We deserve that wrath, but Jesus took it. But He didn't stay dead. He was raised up, and now as a living Christ, the eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, He offers Himself to us as the antidote to the disease of self-righteousness. And you don't have to drum this up with great religious fervor. It is open and available to you today if you will trust Him not just believe certain things about him because he was a great healer or a nice guy or a good teacher or he was sacrificial and you like that aspect of Jesus. But will you bank on him? Will you trust him? Will you rest in him as your only hope? And then will you say it? Maybe in prayer, maybe out loud, but as a way of saying, this is my only hope. That's what confession looks like. Jesus is my only hope. He's the antidote to my evil and pernicious self-righteousness, which would lead me to hell. You see, Paul doesn't stop there, because this is not just something to be taken in, gazed upon, adored, and never shared. Verses 14 through 17 help us understand that when it really comes down to it, The gospel is God's hope for the nations, and we must get it to them. If self-righteousness is universal, if it's a universal problem, God has provided a universal antidote. I like to watch um, movies that are full of calamity. So, you know, like there's these movies out there where there's some horrible disease which infects the planet, like some super flu. And this group of scientists somehow uh, escapes to a secret lab, and just in the nick of time, they're able to come up with an antidote and then find some factory somewhere, like in the middle of the country, and then they reproduce all these vaccines, and then they get it to the world, like through airdrops from the UN. Or like maybe there's a zombie apocalypse, um, but it's like a curable zombie apocalypse. Uh, Some of the best movies are like this. And so you've got this guy, and not only is he a great scientist, somehow he becomes a great marksman as well. 
And um, he's able to, to stay alive long enough by killing, like, the evil undead where he can also get into his laboratory and then, you know, produce this vaccine or whatever and then produce it in, in, a, in a mass way and then get it to the world and then everybody goes from, like, being a zombie to being rescued. I love movies like that. You feel the pressure. You feel the angst of society unraveling. And you look around you and you think, all hope is lost. This, this full of darkness. Humanity is coming to an end. But you've got this little sliver of hope that maybe it could be undone. And, of course, all those movies get to the point where it's just about to, like, completely come undone, right? Like, like that amazing, like, Navy SEAL scientist, whatever, he almost dies, like, three times, but somehow he hangs on to the end. And the really good ones, he's like a martyr too. And like he, at the very end, like hands it off to somebody who's going to get it to the rest of the world. We like those stories. I think one of the reasons that stories like that resonate with us is because that's like reality. You might think this is sort of trite and silly, but in some ways you are walking among the dead. Isn't that what God told Adam and Eve would happen if they sinned? They would die? They didn't die organically right away. They still had oxygen in their lungs. Their synapses in their brain were still firing. The chambers of their heart were still pumping. But they were separated from God, and they were as good as dead. And we believe that God brought them back to life, but their offspring were dead, and their offspring were dead. It's been that way ever since. But you know what? Jesus, who gives light to the world and who Himself is the resurrection and the life, He's he's bringing the dead back to life. Not just in the future, but now. And His message, His gospel, it's an antidote for the dead. When the Navy SEAL scientist sees calamity around him at great personal cost, he gets what is needed to those who desperately need it most that they might be rescued. But we don't have to manufacture it. We've got it. Anybody who has any sort of compassion for fellow humans will not hoard such a vaccine, but they will get it to those who desperately need it. And that's like what it is to be a person who shares the good news of Jesus. White people, black people, here in your country, they need the message of Jesus. I find it increasingly hard to share this message with Americans because they seem to have competing gods that are hard to keep up with. It's hard to keep up with people who have plenty of money and plenty of sex, and plenty of other kinds of things. It's hard to keep up with gods like that. And in a sense, though they might bristle at this indictment or this diagnosis to keep our medical analogy going, they are self-righteous, and you have something to say to them. It's not just your fellow Americans. It's the world all around you. Jews and Greeks, all peoples, of all religions everywhere, dark skin, medium skin, light skin, 
those hostile to Christianity, those amenable to it, those who have never heard of it. The gospel is the antidote. I want to put in front of you just real quickly the logic of this passage so you can see it. There is a calling upon God. That's outwardly expressing your faith. There's a believing. That's trusting Him exclusively. But people won't believe unless they hear, Paul says. They have to face the reality and consider the claims of Jesus. But they will never hear unless the gospel is preached to them. This is proclaiming the good news. And this is not just for the professionals. This is for all of us. Well, how will they preach unless they're sent? This is the church mobilizing and collective mission. That's Paul's logic through this passage. People need to call on Jesus. They need to believe in their hearts, but they will never believe if they never hear. They will never hear unless the gospel is shared with them. And it is our responsibility as a church to mobilize ourselves and others with whom we find partnership that the gospel might go forth. What's the result of all this? God will save people from all nations. Notice, I do not say God will save all people. We know that's not the case. But God will save people from all nations. We know that because at the end of all things, in the book of Revelation, people from every tribe and tongue and language will worship around the throne of Jesus. In fact, the Scriptures tell us that the end will not come until the gospel is shared in every place among all peoples. In Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says to the crowds, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. It was valuable enough that he made it his own at great personal cost because of the surpassing treasure he would gain. You have this treasure, but you should not hoard it. You should share it. Does the world understand the love of God? I don't think they do, Luther said about 500 years ago. The slender capacity of man's heart cannot comprehend the unfathomable depth and burning zeal of God's love toward us. That's the opposite of self-righteousness. This is the only thing that can overcome self-righteousness. And you must proclaim that, and you must embody that. We'll talk more about that in just a moment as we close. At the conference this past week, Piper said, if you have any strength left in your church, give it to the nations. And by God's grace, that's what we will do here. So one more time through the passage. Self-righteousness is universal and damning, and that should scare you. Secondly, God rescues the self-righteous on the basis of their trust in Jesus, and that should take away your fear because Jesus is your hope. And as you find him to be your rescuer, you have a responsibility and privilege to take the antidote of the disease of self-righteousness and get it to the nations, here and abroad. How do we respond to this? <clears throat> a few things. First, 
We must know and love people. We must purpose to understand human nature, tendencies of people. Here's what I mean. If you're going to be able to help people, if you're going to be able to engage with them, you've got to understand them, which means that you can't just float through life. The people who are most adept at sharing the antidote of the gospel of Jesus for the disease of self-righteousness better understand human nature. And then you can engage with people. As you see your neighbor who is self-righteous, get to their hearts by talking about your own self-righteousness. As you see your neighbor struggle with idolatry, share your own idols and how you're learning to put those down and find superior treasure in Jesus. You must know and love people. They are, they are fellow humans, and they desperately need Jesus. Those who are the best evangelists know people and love them. It means you've got to engage with people. Some of you may need to reorganize your priorities so that you're engaging consistently with people with whom you can share the antidote of the gospel. It's difficult to do that at work. Nationwide and Chase and Huntington and wherever else you work, they don't pay you to be an evangelist. That's not in your job description. Now, you might have an opportunity to do that over lunch or some kind of gathering, but, but you've got to find ways to provide time where you can do this. You may need to reprioritize some of your schedule in life, which might really cost you something. But then as you engage people, you've got to get to know them in a relational point of view and love them. Secondly, we must be ever-growing in our understanding of and appreciation for the gospel. Self-righteous Christians hold little appeal for the world. Here's what I mean. You better be seeing that the gospel is your only hope, not just when you were seven in your PJs, but today because you will naturally drift back into self-righteousness, comparing yourself with other people, posturing in such a way that people will think well of you, hoping that God accepts you on the basis of your performance and obedience. The gospel argues against that. And as you find your hope in Jesus, your self-righteousness is put down. And then you have something to say. But if you're self-righteous and your message is just some sort of religious jargon, you're just giving people an alternative version of what you already believe and what they already believe. Everybody's got a gospel. Every, everybody has their form of good news. Uh, don't confuse people with, with false good news. Give them the real good news. Thirdly, we must pray, speak, sacrifice, and Pray some more. There's a missionary that I highly respect in Albania. He has a very simple formula for the way he approaches the world around him. Here's what it is. He prays that God will help him to meet people and have opportunities to engage them. He goes out and he meets those people, and then he shares Jesus. So that's it. You pray, you meet people, and you share Jesus. And it's got to go in that order. You pray, you meet people, 
and you share Jesus. Now, you're not going to do that every day. You're not going to do that with every person. But that's what I'm saying here in this third point of application. You have to have seasons of prayer where you're ready for this, and you're begging God to bring people to you. And then you've got to speak to them. You've got to share with them, often more than once. And you've got to give up some of your rights to do that. And then you've got to pray some more. And that's true locally and it's true globally. You can't reach somebody in Pakistan with your own lips. But there's somebody that we can pay for through our own sacrifice that can do that. And then we pray for them. That's the cycle. Prayer, speaking, sacrifice, praying, speaking, sacrifice. Fourthly, we must prioritize getting the gospel to those who have never heard. Paul cared about that here in this chapter. There's a lot of people who've never heard. Therefore, they need to be preached to. And if they're going to be preached to, the ones who are going to do the preaching got to be mobilized. Later on at the end of this book, Paul tells the Roman church he's going to go to Spain because the gospel hasn't gotten to Spain yet in the first century. Yes, we should share the gospel with the United States, but there's a whole host of people around the globe who have never even heard the name of Jesus. And guess what? There's a lot of people in Columbus now that have no concept of who Jesus is. There are 100,000 Muslims in our city now. It's kind of shocking, isn't it? And they've heard of Jesus because He's in the Quran, but they have no conception that Jesus is the Son of God who gave Himself for them, and He's their only hope for righteousness. So we prioritize getting the gospel to those who have never heard or understood. Then lastly, and we'll close, some should go and some should stay. I close with this because I want this to rest on you. Most of you will stay here in the United States, and you will have the responsibility to do those first four things. But some of you should leave. We have not yet had anybody from our church leave here to take the gospel somewhere among people who've never heard. I hope that will happen. It might be for those who are seminary trained. It might be for those who are really good businessmen. In fact, the portion of our world that's hardest to get to, you can't go if you've been to seminary, generally speaking. But you can go if you're a good banker. can go if you're an attorney. You can go if you're a small business owner. You can go if you can do mercy ministry. Some of you should go. And then some of us should stay behind and pay for you to go and pray for you to go. And by God's grace, the base of senders and enablers here will grow as well. We, we need that to happen as well. As Piper said, whatever resources we have, I want it to be, and I believe I know you well enough to know that you would echo these sentiments you want it to be, that what resources we have, we give it to the nations. There's a lot of things we'll just never do here. We're never going to be super slick. We're not going to have a whole lot of amazing programs and structure here because we just think they're kind of distracting. Programs aren't necessarily bad, but we want to spend our resources of time and talent and treasure on what really matters. So by God's grace, He'll make this, this church family bigger with more resources. Not so we can have great buildings, oh, that, 
might be nice someday, not so we can fund great programs and draw a crowd to ourselves. But if God would be pleased to give us more people and more resources, let's just spend it on the nations. That's what we want. So bring your neighbors here that they might hear the gospel, that they might become enablers and senders. And some of you should go. And that's hard to even consider, I know, for a lot of you. I'll tell you a story and then we'll quit. I'm reading a book right now uh, by John Piper called Filling Up the Afflictions of Christ. It's a, uh, I think it's the fifth in a series of books he's written um, about great Christians who have lived in the past. And this is the best one I've read so far. Uh, in, this, in this book, he talks about William Tyndall, who helped uh, get the Bible printed in English in England, John Patton, who took the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands, now called Vanuatu, and Adoniram Judson. Um, Patton lived in the 19th century, and um, he tells a story of growing up in a Christian home. I think he had 10 or 11 siblings. And after every meal, his father would retire to this little closet and pray. And this is what he did all day long, like three times a day. He was a tradesman, so he worked hard, but he prayed a lot. And this family was robustly Christian. He had wanted, as a young man, to become a pastor, but for a number of reasons it didn't work out. But he and his wife prayed consistently that God would take some of their children and use them to get the gospel around the world. <clears throat> And John, being the oldest son, was fully aware of his parents' intentions. As he grew up, became an older man, he went to theological training and became a very great pastor. He started a large church in, I think, Glasgow, Scotland. And um, at the height of his success, he felt the call to take the gospel to the New Hebride Islands, which uh, were dangerous. In fact, there had been some Western missionaries who had gone to the New Hebrides and had been um, martyred not long before that. A lot of people around Patton said, don't do this. You'll get killed. You'll waste your life. Stay here. You have a growing, burgeoning church. You can, you can bring the gospel to Scotland. That's what we need. And Patton considered that because he had a fruitful ministry, but ultimately he decided he needed to go to these islands um, at great personal cost. Within a few months, his wife died. His child died. Uh, he was threatened again and again and again. Uh, eventually, he left the first island, went to another, and, and between his time in both those islands, thousands of people who had no conception of Christianity at all, like they'd never heard of God at all, became Christians. It was, a, it was an amazing transformation of that chain of islands. Um, but um, as he was considering going, he finally made the decision to go, and his parents wrote him a letter. And I want to read that letter to you real quick from this book. And uh, when I'm finished, you can, you can borrow this from me. Um, let me make sure I can find it here real quick. This is the letter that his parents wrote him. <clears throat> this is in uh, 19th century English, so hang with me. So this is from his parents to John. Heretofore, up until this point, we feared to bias you. But now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you have been led to take the gospel to the New Hebrides Islands. Your father's heart was set upon being a minister, but other claims forced him to give it up. 
When you were given to them, your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it has been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, and give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. That's what those people prayed for their kids. So I read that to you, to say to you that when it really comes down to it, this life is short, and the nations need Jesus. He is their only hope. Whether it's you, or your friend, or your children, we have the responsibility to use our resources to get the gospel to those who need it most. In doing so, our Savior receives the glory that He is due and the world will receive the joy that the gospel of Jesus Christ alone can give. Let's pray.